0: The Jodcast, with all wires now untangled With Claire Brotherton, Fiona Healy, Ian Harrison, Ian Morrison, Jake Morgan, Minnie Mao and Tom Scrag The Jodcast, March 2017 edition Hello and welcome back to The Jodcast I'm Jake and joining me in the studio today are Tom Scrag Hi And Fiona Healy Hi Jake Right, so we have a new presenter with us in the studio today. We have Tom here with us. So do you want to say <coughs> a little bit about who you are and what you do in the
1: department? Yep. Hello, everybody. My name's Tom. I'm a PhD student, second year PhD student, studying pulsars here at Manchester.
0: Good to have you on board, Tom. In the show this time, Minimao interviews Professor Martin Van Kirkwick about pulsar scintillometry and Ian Morrison and Claire Brotherton take a look at what's happening in the March night sky. But first,
2: before all of that, here's Ian Harrison with this month's news. In the news this month, seven exciting new planets and the rise and fall of emergent gravity. Astronomers once again pushed the boundaries of the field of exoplanets this month with the announcement of the discovery of a system of seven Earth-sized rocky planets orbiting a single star. A press release on the 23rd of February detailed the discovery of the planets orbiting TRAPPIST-1, a red dwarf star some 40 light-years away from Earth. The system was first observed by a group of scientists from the University of Liège in Belgium, as you may have guessed from the name. TRAPPIST is a rather heavy-handedly constructed acronym for Transiting Planets and Planetesimals Small Telescope South, and refers to an instrument at the La Silla Observatory in Chile. Trappist 1, in the direction of the constellation Aquarius, is a very unsun-like star, being some 2,000 times dimmer and far cooler than the sun, and being only marginally bigger than the planet Jupiter, albeit 80 times as massive. This means that the planets, named Trappist 1b to H, also have a number of very unusual properties. All are packed in extremely close to their parent star lying between 0.01 and 0.06 AU, all smaller distances than that between the Sun and Mercury. This proximity means that the years on the seven planets are all incredibly short, lasting only between 1.5 and 20 Earth days. There are some good reasons to refer to these planets as Earth-like, however. The masses of all seven are comparable to Earth, ranging from 0.4 to 1.4 Earth masses, and three of the planets apparently lie in the Goldilocks zone of the system, residing at the right distance from the star for it to be possible that liquid water may exist on their surface. The release of the news was heavily trailed by NASA, whose Spitzer space telescope had pointed at the system for 20 continuous days to follow up the original Trappist observations. The Belgian team, led by Michael Guillaume, had used the transit method whereby planets are detected by the tiny change in brightness they cause when transiting across the face of their parent star to detect three of the Trappist-1 planets as of May last year. The Spitzer observations added significantly to this, finding that one of the three was in fact three different planets, and detecting two more, making the total of seven, and taking data on a total of 34 different transit events. Reaction to the discovery Amongst the astronomical community echoed that which has met similar discoveries in the past few years of quiet enthusiasm and cautions that such planets may be very unlikely to host life. Many were quick to point out, as usual, that Venus counts as an Earth-like planet in the Goldilocks zone, but is very far from being habitable, and that the close orbits of the TRAPPIST-1 objects mean they will be tidally locked with one side of each planet perpetually facing the star. This will likely create very extreme weather conditions on any of the planets lucky enough to host an atmosphere, making the evolution of life tricky to say the least. We will still be studying the system closely though, with both the Hubble and James Webb Space Telescopes expected to make future observations looking for information about the composition of any atmosphere on the planets. The TRAPPIST-1 system is yet another, yet another new exoplanet system which shows us the extraordinary diversity of planets just in our own galaxy, and shows how far humanity's observational skills have improved in a few short years. Exoplanet expert David Charbonneau of Harvard University pointing out on Twitter that the first planet ever discovered using the transit method was in fact bigger than the star in the TRAPPIST-1 system. Also in the news this month was the precipitous fall of a previously promising candidate for a simultaneous explanation of the strange phenomena of dark matter and dark energy. A description of the theory originally appeared in November 2016 in a paper placed on the archive server by Eric Verlinde of the University of Amsterdam. Verlinde's paper described a version of gravity very different to Einstein's general relativity rather than being a fundamental property of physics, describing how light and matter follow paths in curved spacetime, Thalinde's gravity is a macroscopic-only property which emerges from complicated microscopic physics, just as the complicated process of global weather emerges from the microphysics of thermodynamics of individual and groups of molecules. Theories of emergent gravity have existed for a number of years, But Valinde's was interesting, as it was the first to posit a solution to both problems of dark energy and dark matter. Instead of being a property of the geometry of curved spacetime, here gravity is a representation of the entangled information stored in the quantum bits, or qubits, of the universe. Ordinary bits, as used in classical computers, have values of either 0 or 1, but qubits are quantum, and hence weird meaning they can exist in superpositions of both states at once. The probabilities that the different qubits will take on a given value can also become entangled, meaning their values become related over very large distances. In emergent gravity, it is these entanglements which create the pull exerted by different clumps of mass on one another. In this theory, dark energy the reason we observe the expansion of the universe to be accelerating, comes from the thermal excitation of the qubits, as if they have all been shaken up and driven further apart. Belinda also argued that in the presence of ordinary matter, often called baryonic matter by cosmologists, these dark energy entanglements could be disrupted, creating an elastic response which actually increases the gravitational attraction in these regions of space. The upshot, after 40 pages of detailed calculation and arguments, is that this extra attraction actually looks a lot like that caused by dark matter, the other great unknown in our large-scale understanding of the universe. This theory thus kills two birds with one stone, and was met with much excitement. Shortly after, another paper by a group of prominent observational cosmologists in December lended further credence to the idea. The group, led by Margot Breuer of Leiden University, also in the Netherlands, calculated the expected distortions of images of background galaxies caused by gravitational lensing by galaxies which formed in a universe with Verlinde's emergent gravity. They were able to show that the mass structures of the lensing galaxies in the new theory were at least as consistent with the observations as the structures of lensing galaxies in the standard Old lambda CDM cosmology containing both dark matter and dark energy. This all sounds great, but the lensing paper in December was met with a strong skepticism by many, who pointed out many apparent naiveties in the analysis, which assumed the galaxies were spherical, point like masses, and that the emergent gravity theory was able to somehow produce both the gravitational lensing effect and the whole concept of a universe expanding at an accelerating rate in the first place. Further daggers to Valende's heart came on Valentine's Day this year, when two papers were released at the same time, showing that the emergent gravity theory was actually inconsistent with a number of other observations. One by Federico Lelli, Stacy McGar, and James Schombert creates simple models for disk galaxies, but not as simple as spherical points in emergent gravity. They find that their models predict such galaxies would be much fainter by a factor of up to two for a given mass than that which is inferred by a whole slew of observations. The second paper by Aurelian Heese, Benoit famey and Gianfranco Bertone replicates this finding, also showing that it would be possible to reconcile the differences, but only by adopting a value for the Hubble constant, our measurement of how quickly the universe is expanding today, which is again far lower than that allowed by a whole other set of observations spanning the past three decades. In addition, they retreat to a situation where the simple calculations currently possible within the emergent gravity model should be most valid in our own solar system, where bodies such as the sun are extremely spherical and comparatively small. Here they again find a large discrepancy with observations, showing that there are seven orders of magnitude, that is a factor of 10 million, between the departures expected from Newtonian gravity and those which have been actually observed. It will be interesting to see if emergent gravity can be saved, either with more detailed calculations, or additions to account for the observational results, but it has already served as an excellent high-speed demonstration of how theories are tested in modern cosmology.
3: Thanks for that, Ian. Now, Minnie interviews Professor
4: Martin van Kerwick about pulsar scintillometry. This is Minnie interviewing Professor Martin van Kerkveik from the University of Toronto. Hi, Martin. Hello. Could you tell us a little bit about your research?
5: I'd like to to study dead objects.
4: (laughs) Dead objects?
5: (laughs) Stellar corpses, both uh, they're called white dwarfs and neutron stars. You probably have heard about neutron stars before if you have listened to this podcast ever. I'm sure there are a lot (laughs) of people who study neutron stars and pulsars who feature in it. I'm interested in them both, in how they form. How they, how they come about. And also in, because they're very extreme. They're both extremely dense. A white dwarf is sort of the mass of the sun in an earth sized object. A neutron star is a bit more than the mass of the sun in a city sized object. And they're so dense, as particularly the neutron stars, that we don't really understand how stuff behaves if you compress it that much. And even I do mostly observations, but my sort of underlying goal is to understand how these objects actually work.
4: I find that stuff so interesting. I mean, we always hear those sound bites, like, you know, a teaspoon of matter from a neutron star weighs like 200 million tons or something ridiculous like that.
5: The way I'd like to describe this is a bit more morbid one is that you take uh, if you take every human who ever lived and is alive today and all compress them in one cubic centimeter, you would have the density of a neutron star. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't kidding when you said you like studying dead things. <laughs> <laughs>
4: That's really cool. So, um, Professor Martin von Kerkvik is actually giving our colloquium tomorrow and I've been reading the abstract and it sounds very interesting because it says that you're going to be able to do nano arc second astrometry. So did you want to tell us a little sure. bit? Sure. About-
5: Partly why I'm visiting here, we had some earlier observations where Joder Bank was involved. We used a lot of telescopes on Earth and the basic picture is much easier to explain with a drawing. What happens to radio waves that pulsars emit is that as they travel towards us, interstellar medium is not quite a vacuum, it's incredibly tenuous. But those radio waves of pulsars and any object really, they get very slightly delayed and also a little bit bent. And the net result of that is that if we Look at the pulsar, we don't actually get only the emission that comes directly from the pulsar, but we got also things which are, which came under with a slight delay, with a slightly long about wave. They sort of maybe went not quite in our direction, but very close to it. And then they got bent in the interstellar medium and then ended up in our dish anyway. And these uh, radio waves, what, what they do is they if because they come with slight delays, they interfere with each other. And the net effect of that is is that it's similar to what, what happens if you look at a star with your with your own eyes, you see that it sort of looks like it's changing its brightness. We call that twinkling of stars. These radio pulsars st- they the atmosphere does not very little to them, our own atmosphere, but in the interstellar medium they have this bending too, and therefore they twinkle. In the sense that's, that as you look at them over time, then sort of every few minutes they get brighter and fainter at a given frequency, at another at another radio frequency which is very nearby. It would also get brighter and fainter but not quite in the same way. Turns out, and we actually don't really understand why this is, that this bending of the light only happens at very particular locations in the space between us and the pulsar. Um, You would think that it might just happen everywhere but it it doesn't. This is an observational fact for which there are theories but uh, certainly not everybody agrees. So the net effect is that you can think of it as we have a pulsar somewhere in the distance, very far away, then somewhere in between there is something which acts a little bit like a lens. And that's really what we're trying to use, which sort of bends light a little bit. And some of the light get actually bent the wrong way, but some towards us. That causes this, what we call scintillation twinkling of the pulsar now if we look with multiple telescopes on earth we can actually get make pretty precise very spatial resolving power as if you had a dish which was as big as of order the earth you can see very sharply not necessarily very sensitively but at least very sharply
4: so this is very long baseline that's in that's right yes right,
5: and right. that's where what general Bank partly does that's partly why we why we used it and that means you can sort of look at that pulsar and what you see then is actually multiple images you don't quite see just the one image directly from the pulsar but you also see extra Extra images where the light was bent a bit by the interstellar medium. We need actually quite a bit of trickery to do that. It's not quite as standard VLBI or very long baseline interferometry as one normally does, but I won't go into the trickery too much, but one can do that. It turns out that these images from the, the extra images, so basically from the lens, they're, they're not sort of around the pulse. They're only on two on both sides of a pulse like in a random orientation. So oh. they, they form sort of a line on the sky, which is another puzzle that we don't really understand. But I mean, I think it's really interesting to find out why that is. But I really care mostly about the fact that, that there are discrete little images where the interstellar medium has sent the polar light towards us, and we can measure those and now, if by sort of looking at all these different images and really measuring what they see, we can almost treat them as if those images are telescopes in space, and that we as if we have control over the telescope, so we can measure what the same as if we had real telescopes in space, which are just at those locations, and that those images on the sky so if you right we have telescopes here on earth which are separated by thousands of kilometers. And we see these images which are separated by say the distance of the earth to the sun so an astro- what's called an astronomical unit and these images are typically separated by an astronomical unit or a couple of astronomical units and it's, so it is almost equivalent as if we had telescopes on earth, on Mars on Jupiter, a few on Saturn maybe wow. a few on the moons so or a few in the asteroid belt,
3: So
1: like except Megas- all on a line which is a
5: <laughs> bit weird but okay and and so you can sort of imagine that we, if we could do really well with telescopes spread over earth we're already very happy, we get a, a sort of milli arc Precision measurements that if you spread them even further all through your solar system basically, and that's sort of the spatial scales we're talking about, then you can get millions of times better resolution. So you get this nano arc second uh, precision measurements. That, that's sort of the, the overall goal that you're trying to reach. And it has sort of been done, not by me actually, but partially by a colleague who was in Australia and is now in the United States, Walter Briskin, and then a colleague of mine in Toronto, Wally Penn, has he, but the Briskins did it from Earth and sort of showed that, oh, these images, they're all on a line and they're sort of separated by some astronomical units. And then my colleague, Rayleigh Penn, went a step further to say, now I can use this to look at with really high resolution at the pulsar. And we're trying to now make this a bit more common and in some sense do scientifically more interesting studies with it. The one that they did was quite nice, but it didn't answer a question that was maybe particularly fantastic.
4: That's very interesting. So essentially, instead of very long baseline interferometer, diphromid- you're doing extremely mega very I mean we were saying uh, I think in the October extra that astronomers quite often have very uncreative names for our telescopes very long baseline extremely long baseline that's right um Mm -hmm. what would you call this then
5: (laughs) I would call it interstellar baseline
4: (laughs) brilliant I love it so I have two well I have lots of questions for you I always thought that scintillation was due to our own ionosphere, and I suppose that's probably true for stars. So what makes pulsars scintillate? Like, why don't stars scintillate due to the ISM?
5: Uh, So... So the the two reasons One is It depends You mean by star As you see it by your eye Then they don't scintillate Because the interstellar medium Is not dense enough To bend the light Of a star Oh because Optical
4: Yeah but, But
5: there's another Reason which is In some sense Also related to What you That you can actually tell If you look by eye at the sky which is a planet and which is a star because planets don't twinkle.
4: Right, because they're bigger in the sky. That's
5: right. They're bigger in the sky and therefore different parts of the planet go through different parts of the atmosphere and each of those, in principle, twinkles. But because you have so many different parts, you you sort of cancel out all the twinkling. Some go up, some go down. and That cancels out. Now, the same goes for this uh, radio scintillation. If your radio source is too big, you would get many different paths and they would actually not scintillate. Right. And basically, because the scale for that is the same nano arc seconds. So anything that's bigger than, say, 200 nano arc seconds on the sky is seen from us, which is typical distance. We're talking uh, maybe 10,000 kilometers or so. And both are really nicely smaller than right. that. But most other objects are quite a lot bigger than 10,000 right, right. kilometers. Those wouldn't twinkle.
4: So compact radio objects do simply... I know yeah, people, that's right. Yeah. And so then,
5: in some sense, the same kind of thing, that you have something which is actually quite small. And in that case, it's also, well, it may actually be 10,000 kilometers, but it's much further away than the are. So in a in sort of the angle on the sky, it is really quite small. And that's why those extra, extra galactic sources also can scintillate. But
4: they're scintillating because of the ionosphere or because of the ISM? And
5: they also scintillate because of the ISM. There is also effects due to our Earth's ionosphere. Okay. And I'm sort of usually assuming that do- that we understand, more or less. So that's taken out. I'm not <laughs> wor- worrying about that. Okay. You have to worry about it if you're actually doing the measurements. But And the interstellar part is sort of the new part.
4: Right. And so with this interstellar very long base, baseline interferometry?
5: No, in, on an interstellar scale, it's like maybe it would be the interstellar small baseline
4: <laughs> the, <interferometer. laughs> the interstellar small um, baseline interferometry. This is something that you can only do with pulsars because they're so compact. That's right. But does that also mean you can only study pulsars with Um tank? Yeah, so m-
5: maybe one could, in principle, as you said, there are some extragalactic sources. So maybe one could study those too. That's actually harder because pulsars have the advantage that they have these regular pulses of radio emission. And, and we use that in part to help us understand what how this scintillation pattern works. But oh, in I principle, those does, does extragalactic sources, one could do two but basically yes at some level one is limited to what happened to be the most interesting objects in the universe so it's not so bad (laughs) well one of the most interesting
4: (laughs) i think you might be a little biased but pulsars are very interesting so the other thing i saw that you're going to be talking about in the colloquium tomorrow are these giant pulses right and so if i again i think i told you i'm not a pulsar astronomer i basically understand you've got this very compact object it's rotating you see the beam of you know a Particles, but how often do you get giant pulsars? What causes them? What-
5: so, most pulsars, as you said, it's a standard picture of a lighthouse. There's something turning turning around, and the beam of the lighthouse, if it goes towards you, you see a, a pulse of emission coming by. And some pulsars sometimes emit much brighter pulses, which are thousands of times brighter. So, for the object that we've been studying, normally in any given rotation, we just barely detect that there is a little peak and we just add many of them together and we get a nice signal. But those ones are just completely obvious, those giant pulses, and they come, but not many pulses don't do this, some do. The, the crab pulsar, one of the first ones, is a very famous example. Actually, that's one which is so extreme that it almost only emits giant pulses and then for a long time she don't see anything and then another giant pulse. And our pulsar is a bit more in between, I guess, in that it's, it shows these, maybe every few seconds, it has one giant pulse, now this pulser rotates incredibly fast it rotates around it acts as 600 times per second wow so normally you get actually for every few thousand regular pulses you get one one which really stands out and it's quite clear it's not just that oh this was a bit unusually bright it it really stands out right so they are very very short which is really 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 sort of so interesting. you
4: said they happen every few thousand rotations so it's yep. Doing a giant pulse every yeah. few seconds. Well,
5: that's the ones we see, of course, right? It might right. be doing much, more, many more of them which happen to go in the wrong way and we don't see them.
4: What do you mean by in the wrong way?
5: Well, they're emitted. They're usually emitted maybe quite in some direction. and oh, it, just ha- it doesn't happen not to go towards us.
4: Wow. So do you have any idea what causes the giant pulses?
5: There are ideas about it, but... I think they're, they're, they're very vague. I hope actually at some level our observations can help maybe understand them a bit. One thing that our observations did help show is that they're really, really short. And so we did that in part actually using the, that, that interstellar medium because the light follows different paths. So some paths take a little bit longer. So this, this is one of those things that I find quite intriguing. So to, to tell you sort of how, how little the interstellar medium at some level does. So this, this pulsar is um, two kiloparsecs or about 6,000 light years away. So the light takes 6,000 years to, from the pulsar to come to us. And then these little detours that uh, that a bit of the light makes by going through the interstellar medium on that 6000 years it adds maybe mm, 10 microseconds or so <laughs> at most <Really? laughs>
4: wow.
3: so it's
5: a very very short additional delay but but nonetheless, these pulser, these pulses themselves, the giant pulses, are actually much shorter than that. And so at some level, it's as if you take a little flash photograph of that interstellar medium. And you can sort of see, first see the, the, the light that came directly from the pulsar and then maybe a bit which came a bit later, and another bit which came a bit later, yeah. And we see that that pattern is exactly the same as long as the giant pulses are very close together. And from that, we can actually tell that these giant pulses intrinsically, we mean, they arrive over microseconds because of the interstellar medium, but intrinsically they're only they're less than 200 nanoseconds long. So they're really, really short uh, duration in which suddenly the pulsar is very bright, takes a very short time, and then it's off again. But I mean, to get back to your original question, do we understand what happens? Really, the answer is no.
4: Right. Yeah. So, so how long is a normal
5: pulse? So a normal pulse. This again, is a very fast pulsar. So it goes 600 times around its axis uh, each second. And then the normal pulse, uh, the it has actually two components. One which is fairly bright. Right, and it lasts maybe, sorry, one, this is very fairly long, and it lasts maybe 0.4 milliseconds, and then there's a a shorter And brighter components, is more of a peak that lasts, well, what would it be? Maybe 0.1 millisecond or so. But So that is in nanoseconds, that would be, uh, I should do this right, 100,000 nanoseconds. So these giant pulses are much, much shorter than that.
4: So in my naive view of a pulsar, I was under the impression that pulsars, one of the reasons they're so interesting is because they're so regular, their pulses occur at the same time. And I thought that their relative, I guess, strength of each pulse was relatively similar and duration was relatively similar so these things are really like anomalies
5: yeah it is not quite true that every pulse always looks so similar but if you you've added maybe 30 or 100 pulses together then you have something which is really stable which is what people use for the for the timing it is actually in some sense a little bit i mean in some sense maybe it's good that the giant pulses occur relatively frequently but they, they would throw one off a little bit if but then again, many pulsars don't have these giant pulses.
4: What uh, fraction of pulsars have giant
5: pulsars? Well, I, I think we have to be a little bit careful which fraction has to be found. I <laughs> think there So there's the crab, our, what's called the black widow pulsar. That's ours. And there's another uh, rapidly spinning pulsar. So that's three. And I think there's one more. So it's, it's a handful. Oh, I see. Of, of the thousands of pulsars that we know.
4: Can I ask a non-scientific
5: yeah. question? Yes.
4: I noticed that, you know, you refer to the crab pulsar and the black widow pulsar. Yeah. Is there a thing with coal? naming pulsars after eight-legged creatures.
5: (laughs) (laughs) This is, actually the two are unrelated but it is a funny uh, thing that you ask. (laughs) So the Crab Pulsar is named after the Crab Supernova Remnant, right. and that is because it sort of looks vaguely crab-like in an optical image.
4: And it's beautiful. And it's
5: really—it's a really beautiful image. That's right. And actually, again, it's one of—if you've never seen that, look at the, the Crab Pulsar, the movie or something like that. Will googling it will be fine. It, it actually changes, which is unusual for anything in astronomy. Usually, things don't change on a human timescale. Uh, and this particular one, the Black Widow Pulsar, is is called that way. So this this one has a, a companion. It's in a in a binary with a, a very low mass star and this pulsar, it rotates very fast and this particular one is also losing quite a lot of energy, the pulsar is spinning down and emitting a lot of radiation which is in sort of, the companion orbits this pulsar in about nine hours, so it's quite close to it and because this pulsar is emitting so much energy, the part of the companion that is facing the pulsar gets heated a lot so uh, that companion itself we would, when it was discovered, the term didn't exist yet, we would now at least by its mass call it a brown dwarf so it doesn't have much nuclear fusion itself in its core and it's not not very luminous on its dark side away from the pulsar it's maybe 2500 degrees which is of course by terrestrial standards quite hot celsius or kelvin that doesn't really matter in this, <laughs> this case but on the on the side facing the pulsar it's about as hot as the sun
4: oh wow 6,000 um, yeah, degrees. degrees that's right
5: so it's more than two times as hot and uh, the other thing that we observe is that if the pulsar is sort of it doesn't completely get covered by the companion but if it's behind the companion then in some radio frequencies it it dims quite a lot so there's something coming off the companion and which is probably related to it being heated so much by the pulsar. There's some stuff is leaving the companion uh, some kind of wind of stellar material at a relatively large rate and at least initially when they found the system they thought it was such a large rate that if you waited a billion years or so the companion would be completely gone. That Actually we no longer think that but that why it was called The Black Window Pulse because it it had had a mate and it was it's actually not eating it but it's sort of blasting it apart Um, but we now for, from further measurements, we realize that, that that's not quite true. It will it will stay there, um, but it will get ever more tenuous. I mean, it will stay there for quite a while, least, <laughs> yeah. more than a billion. That years. really
4: is quite macabre. That's yes. an awesome name. Yeah. Yes. But, but aren't there a lot of, I guess, millisecond pulsars or like uh, pulsars that are in binary systems that are also, I guess, cannibalizing or? Yeah.
5: So there, so there, there, are quite a lot of. In fact, many of these very rapidly rotating neutron stars are in binaries and. So think that is because at some point their companion not just before it, it was a pulsar The companion might have Because it end, neared the end of its life Might have become bigger And donated some of the material to the pulsar By, by becoming too big And at some point the material closest to the pulsar Sort of doesn't know anymore Hey I am actually not, don't really belong to the companion anymore I want to go to the, <laughs> to the pulsar And uh, because of all that matter Landing on the pulsar They can make them spin faster again um, So many of the most rapidly spinning pulsars Have binary companions Most of those companions are stellar corpses themselves so that there are stars that that yeah, they maybe lost some matter to the pulsar and now they're white dwarves. So that's partly why I got interested in white dwarves actually. and um, but you're right there are also quite a few which have so after th- this system was the original Black Widow Pulsar we now know more of similar systems and we know also some systems where the, pul- the companion is still a more or less normal star and it's where the Pulsar is not is not heating it as much and because we we're talking spiders anyway those have been dubbed redbacks
4: oh brilliant
5: mm-hmm. <laughs> and the companions actually in their the way they are they sort of if you could see them in, in visual light they would be slightly reddish so this is also <laughs> appropriate they're a bit cold than the sun, so they're not yellow but more orange-reddish.
4: I guess because of what, what you're doing, you're looking at very compact areas and very extreme environments, I also understand that with these you can probe some fundamental physics. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Right, so that?
5: that is the main thing that that I, that sort of goes back to the original thing that right, we we come effectively in a neutron star whatever what remained of uh, of the star that formed it in the supernova explosion is compressed to really high densities. I mean it's called a neutron star because it's mostly made out of neutrons, of course. And basically the the nuclei in the in the matter that formed it have been compressed so much that it's almost as if you have one giant nucleus and so near sort of down to halfway the neutron star we sort of think that we know how matter behaves but if you go further down in the neutron star things have been compressed more and more and it's denser and denser and the question is well what actually happens if you take mostly neutrons and you squeeze them closer and closer together we know from particle physics that neutrons are made up of quarks three quarks each and you can sort of can can sort of imagine that if you could compress them infinitely far, these quarks wouldn't know anymore whether they belong to each other in one neutron or whether they belong to the next neutron. So we not be, from theory, we know that if you compress it to inf- near infinite density, it must become a quark soup, right. a very dense quark soup, that is. But in between, we don't really know what happens, and that is just where neutron stars are. And so the, the hope is that by measuring the properties of neutron stars, we can sort of work backwards and say, well, what really happens if I squeeze neutron neutrons to sort of 10 times the density that they have in in a nucleus. And so what people do is they make, of course, people have different ideas of how it should behave. And if you then, so this particular pulsar is interesting uh, for the following reason, that that if you take these different theories of neutrons, how they would behave if you squeeze them denser and denser, one of the things you get out is that if you take one theory, it would predict that if you make a neutron star more and more massive, so you squeeze it more and more, at some point it's going to form a black hole. You can't handle it anymore. that at some point depends on how you think the center of the neutron star actually behaves. And so different theories make different predictions. And it used to be, th- and that we can compare with observations. So it used to be that, for instance, the, the very sim- most simple-minded theory you could come up with predicted that a neutron star could be no more massive than 0.7 times the mass of the Sun. Now, that's the, the moment the first neutron star mass was determined it was 1.4 so that theory was crossed out but really people knew that that theory was too too simple but the 1.4 was basically at a level where almost everything else was still okay everything that was not really too simple we know that doesn't work was still okay now the last few years we have, there have been two neutron stars found which have a mass of two times the mass of the sun and that oh. excluded about three quarters of all the theories that exist now there are lots of <laughs> theories sadly <laughs> <laughs> but but anyway now this particular Particular black widow pulsar measurements that, that uh that that I actually made of its companion sort of suggest that a mass is two point four solar wow. masses, but we're we basically not quite sure and the, the the thing that is missing is that we We don't quite know how the system is oriented relative to us in space. So you can imagine that uh, if if you're completely aligned with the orbital plane, the two objects would go right in front of each other. So that would be one orientation. And you could imagine another orientation where you're looking from the top down on the binary, um, where just they they go around in the sky. Well, we know that neither of those is correct because we, we we see that the, the objects don't completely go in front of each other and we see the objects move along the line of sight so right. we know they can't be from Poland. And so what people have done to measure how it's oriented is they, they actually took the fact that this companion is so heated by its pulsar and said well there's one half that's really strongly heated and one half that's dark. I can sort of model that and then say okay in, in if we look in optical light we actually see at some time when, when the bright side of the pulsar is towards us so when the pulsar is between us and the and the companion, we see it quite bright, and on the other side we see hardly anything. Can make a model for that, and that gives then what what the angle is between the the, bi- the plane of the of the orbit and how we basically how we're looking at it. Um, now, if I take that, if I trust, and I didn't do that that particular modelling myself, if I trust that, then I get this 2.4 solar masses. Right. but If I think, well, maybe I don't know that I trust that model so much. Maybe the Pulsar is yes, it's heating the companion on one side, but uh, there's some strong winds on the surface so that the backside gets a little bit hotter than I really thought in my model and it changes the answer so right. that's really bad right? you want to have the real answer and the, what we hope to do with this makes make the circle complete what we hope to do with this interstellar short baseline interferometer <laughs> is that we can actually see the the neutron because we have such incredibly high precision we should be able to see the pulsar move on the sky Right. and we know that the orbit itself is circular so if we can see how it looks like in projection then only if we would look right from the top, it would look like a circle on the sky. Well, we know that, that that is not true. While if we look really from the edge, it would look a line on the sky, right? It would just go zigzag. And if it's somewhere in between, it would look like an ellipse. And by measuring how elliptical it is, we would get the inclination, and nobody could argue about that. That would be the right answer. So that that's sort of the goal of the observations, but we have completely haven't gotten there yet, I that's,
4: should be very clear. Oh, I'm, I'm very interested in when you guys get the results. So you said this thing is 6,000 light years away. Yeah. And typically um, neutron stars are of order a few tens of kilometers across. That's right. And you're planning on being able to see kind of the structure on...
5: Yeah, no, no, that seemed quite. No, we have not quite seen quite the, neut- the neutron star itself, but the
4: orbit. But the, but the orbit, and it. the
5: orbit is about ten thousand kilometers. Still, that t- is ha- incredible. Yes. Yeah, that's
4: crazy. <laughs> I mean, I deal with like kiloparsecs to megaparsecs like, to be thinking about looking down on like thousands of kilometers scales. Right. Something six thousand light years away. Yeah,
5: no, that, is, that's uh,
4: very cool.
5: Right. That, <laughs> that is. is
4: very cool. So another thing that I'd never thought about until just chatting to you now, I always just assumed, you know, neutron stars were, you know, just a ball of neutrons. Yeah. But of course, yes, what you're saying is there are different densities yeah. as this goes on. How does one measure, I suppose, is there an, e- I mean, there must be an evolution of neutron stars. And how would you measure the density of neutron stars? You can go white dwarf to neutron star, neutron star to black hole. Yeah. But, you know, this is a continuum, presumably. Yeah. No
5: I I so ideally you would you would in fact measure the the sort of density at different places and just look at the matter directly you can't so I mean and what I'm trying to do is only measure a mass and I look at the sort of the limit of how how big it could be um, ideally you would measure the radius too but right. so people have thought of different ways of doing that and the main way is basically look ex- actually at different neutron stars in, in other types of binaries where you, you you actually do throw some matter on the neutron star and you see then the, binary get, the neutron star gets very bright because this matter falls towards the neutron star with about a third of the speed of light so when it hits the surface it gets really hot so that heats the neutron star up a bit and then the weight that is very difficult to model but we see it's getting very bright get very hot and then at some point that stops and then you basically see the neutron star cool, we say, okay, well, if we now measure how much flux it emits, and we know for some neutron stars, we know the distance fairly well, we measure how hot it is, we can work out in principle what the radius should be. Right. And so people have measured the radii that way. And here again, that is there's the in-principle measurement because what, what? one usually for a given temperature, do you really know how much flux is emitted? We know it approximately. We use a black body formula that de- developed by Planck 100 years ago. It's uh, probably not quite right. We make a model that should be a bit better. Do we know it for sure? Well, I, I would say no. <laughs> but what has what what this has helped already is right we may know it not to the level that we really would like, but it does show that the radii are indeed ten or maybe fifteen kilometers. So but it's just that we don't know exactly what it is and we would need to know it more precisely to really tell what happens inside the neutral star. This
4: is this is all mind blowing for me. I was very excited just by the Event Horizon telescope, which mm. is planning on using V L B I but right. at high frequencies so they get the really high spatial resolution. No, that's right. But to do this with pulsars and to sort of probe our own galaxy with this kind of precision is really insane. Um, I have another question, sure. which, again, is probably outside of normal pulsar astronomers. But um, if giant pulses are so powerful, does that mean you can see pulsars outside of our own Milky Way?
5: Um, possibly. People have... have uh, So the, the brightest ones that we know have come from the crab pulsar. And those, in principle, we should be probably be able to see in our nearest galaxy, say the Andromeda galaxy. Um, people have looked for it, not quite found it. I, I must say, I'm not completely sure whether one would have almost seen it, or whether you would have seen something that's a bit brighter than a crap. I don't remember that. But what? what some people at least do think is that the fashion in astronomy, also in astronomy we have fashion with, with really sort of weird things that are really not understood and then everybody of course wants to help understand. But so it's a fashion in a good sense I think. And those are called fast radio bursts. So some from random direction in the sky we, we get sometimes these flashes of radio emission which seem to to come from, from really quite far away. That's about the only constraint we have. And, and one of the Maybe in some sense the, the simplest model for them is that they are in fact sort of ultra strong analogs of these So they're super giant pulses, right? <laughs> we have to add another super or maybe hyper. Amazing
4: acronyms. <laughs> yes, that's right.
5: And so that w- would be one possibility, um, that they are pulsars like the crab pulses. And so that we, in fact, if that's the case, we, we the answer to your question would be yes. <laughs> we would be able to see them elsewhere, but we, we don't know that for sure yet. And there's certainly. I think it is still correct to say, I think we, we have now maybe two dozen of these fast radio bursts, and we have about ten times more theoretical ideas of what they, what they are really due to.
4: I keep hearing people say that there are more theories than there are FRBs right That's now. Right. But FRBs are pretty much one of the hottest topics in modern astronomy right now. Yeah, at I least think.
5: In the, for, for radio astronomy.
4: Right. Yes. <laughs> are there any other type of astronomer?
5: <laughs> well, there are people who look for planets around other stars. And I don't that understand. <laughs>
4: Well, that's really exciting. Thank you so much for taking the time to join mm-hmm. us on this podcast. Oh, thank you for having
5: me. And I'm Race. really
4: excited about the colloquium tomorrow. Okay. So well, I, thank I, you very much. And that was Professor Martin von Kerkvite from the University of Toronto. Yep. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. Thank
3: Thanks.
5: you.
4: Thanks for that, Minnie.
1: Now we come to that part of the show where we fit in all those other bits we couldn't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. Oh, I'll start with the first one. On the 23rd of February here in the U.K., Storm Doris caused a fair amount of havoc. One impact was to close down all the active radio astronomy observatories across the country. The high winds put the telescopes at risk, so the structures and the dishes were pointed directly to the zenith and parked. The effects, however, are wider than just the UK, as the Lovell Telescope at Jodrell Bank was scheduled to participate in observations with EVN, the European VLBI network. Although it says European, the actual network itself in this occasion included telescopes from around the world. So from Arecibo in Puerto Rico, which was the westernmost, across to Badere in East Siberia,
3: which was the Eastern Mars Telescope. I found the EVN don't really discriminate when it comes to which telescopes they use. They just claim them all as being European. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's fine for them. <laughs> yeah, In fact, I went to an EVN conference one time with a load of um, VLBA data, which, uh, as our listeners may know, is in the States. I'm not Europe at all, <laughs> but I didn't mind. <laughs> so over the next few weeks, um, quite a lot of the uh, major uh,
1: radio telescopes around the world Uh, A scheduled to feature in these observations from EVN, Um, so it's off to a very poor start.
5: Yeah,
1: Yeah. inauspicious.
3: I mean, I've got to say though, like, so my supervisor Tim and I were driving to Lancaster yesterday to a meeting um, about NOVE. And we nearly got blown off the road a few times. Like it was, it was, for anyone who was out there yesterday in the UK, it was really seriously windy. So I'm not surprised that yeah. observations were
0: I had to wear my big coat.
3: Your big coat. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's like, you know, one of the signals of the apocalypse.
0: Yeah, that's, that's when you know it's <laughs> the serious. The big
3: coat came out. <laughs> so
1: the observations that were scheduled for yesterday may be rescheduled. But of course, it depends on time on the other telescopes On. The time of day when they can all see the same source. Yeah. yeah,
3: no, it's, um, can be really hard because you can either call it off and reschedule or, I mean, sometimes, you know, observations go ahead. I mean, obviously not when the weather is as bad as it was yesterday, but definitely as someone who's flagged a lot of uh, radio interferometry data, there are certain data sets that you flag them and you're looking at one telescope going, some bad weather must have been happening here today because <laughs> everything's terrible. Um, so it's definitely something that has an effect.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, really, because I'm not a radio astronomer and it's a it's oh. bit difficult to to imagine radio observations being affected by bad weather.
3: Well, yeah, so so they don't get affected by bad weather in that the radio waves can come, mostly can come through the clouds. There are some yeah. frequency extremes at the higher end where it begins to interfere with the water vapour, um, but mostly it's not something you have to worry about. Uh, but what does happen is that the weather, um, the weather will have other effects, like it'll, if it's very cold or very hot, wires and things will be expanding and contracting. The connections Uh, between the telescopes will be, will be changing more. Uh, If it's very windy, the thing just might be moving a little bit. Mm. Um, it's all stuff that, that does still have an effect and that you do have to, like I said, that you end up flagging out for hours and <laughs> hours because you have to, <laughs> what we have to do is go through all the data. We have to go through all the data and look for things like that. They'll show up. Um, You can see, you know, you'll be looking, you can plot all the data in time and frequency and you'll see, like, there might be one time where there's just a big spike that's not supposed to be there. And you think, okay, maybe someone... Turn on their mobile phone or open the microwave, or <laughs> ah, <yeah. laughs> or, or if there's, so that's if there's, happened before. You know, if one telescope is kind of dodgy for a whole observation, you think, okay, maybe there was a storm or something that was affecting it for a long time. Oh, okay,
0: so it affects more the the observational aspects, <laughs> so the instrument itself.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. So while well, the the radio waves aren't aren't really affected, mm. I mean, like I said, they can be uh, depending on where you're observing, but um, but yeah, no, it does still have an effect.
0: So my odd and end for this month is a piece that picked up quite a bit of traction among just sort of general mainstream media over the past week. And it concerns a museum dedicated to Winston Churchill out in the States. So that is Fulton, Missouri. And there is an essay that he's written, which has turned up out of the archives. It runs to about 11 pages and is titled, Are We Alone in the Universe?
3: And I saw that on Twitter, but I haven't actually been following it.
0: Ah, okay. Well, that's why we have this on an end. Exactly. And so what we know about it at the moment is it was perhaps written for News of the World, the newspaper. And it was first written in about 1939, revised again at some point in the 50s. But for whatever reason, it never made it to print and ended up in the archives of this museum sometime in the 80s. And has only now come to light.
3: So like when you say archives, so like in a box in the attic and they were tidying up and they found it?
0: Ah, uh, I'm not sure, but I imagine it's something yeah. like that. <laughs> I like to think it's something like yeah.
3: that. Mm, that's really cool. And, uh, so, but we haven't actually seen the content of the essay yet, have we?
0: Uh, not in full, no. The essay itself is still yet to be published to the general public because mm. there's a whole bunch of copyright issues that it's tied up in. But the hope is that this essay will eventually see the light of day.
3: Yeah, absolutely. It should. It should see the light of day. I mean, well, a, I'd be really intrigued to see what's in it and what hmm. people thought about extraterrestrial life in the 1930s. Um, yeah. Do you know, is it known to the general public um, what the overall conclusion was? Do they, do they... Uh, We have
0: a general summing up of sort of the content of the essay and some of the arguments that he makes in it. He basically starts off from the Copernican Principle. He recognises that human life does not occupy a particularly privileged position in the universe.
3: Uh Uh-huh.
0: And Earth and our solar system are are, are not necessarily unique Uh in harbouring life. He considers some of the conditions that are necessary for life to occur, such as water. He does write, and I quote, "...all living things of the type we know require water." which is true, and it's still one of the conditions that we are using as astronomers today to right. try and gauge a planet's habitability. And he also considers the need for a planet to have an atmosphere conducive to life, huh. which is, of course, one of the things I work on at the moment. And he actually goes so far as to define a habitable zone around a particular star. So he goes on to consider which other bodies in the solar system might be habitable. He goes on to rule out the giant planets, so that's Jupiter to Neptune, because they'll be too cold. Liquid water couldn't survive in such conditions. He rules out Mercury because it would be too hot on one side and too cold on the other. And so he is then left with Mars and Venus as possible places where liquid water might have existed or have once existed in the past. Mm-hmm. And of course, we now know that Mars has polar ice caps.
3: Ah, uh, yes. In, and in fact, uh, if you'd like, that's a nice segue onto my odd and... I think that works. Yeah. I think we should go with this. <laughs> okay. Well, speaking of the polarised caps on Mars, uh, some new ESA images have recently emerged of the polarised caps on Mars. So ESA's Mars Express spacecraft between 2004 and 2010 orbited Mars a bunch of times and took a load of pictures. And then uh, ESA went off and stuck them all together in a mosaic, because uh, it's quite hard to take a picture of the entire pole of a planet in one go Mm. Um, but Isa took all the the little bits of, of pictures of the poles and stuck them together in a big mosaic so now we have a really good look at what the polarised caps on Mars look like um, and as one news source put it, um, what they look like is a cinnamon bun. <laughs> I do
0: like cinnamon buns. <laughs> oh, my
3: God. So that's what caught my eye first about this story. I saw it flashing up <laughs> um, on the Ars Technica news feed. And I was like, what's that now about cinnamon buns? Because I love them. Um, and I was eating my breakfast at the time, and it kind of made me want a cinnamon bun for breakfast, maybe later, maybe for lunch. Um, but but anyway, um, so the reason the ice caps look like cinnamon buns is to do with um, the composition of Mars and um, it's because while here on Earth um, we just have water ice on Mars, they have a mixture they, who's they, the Martians on Mars there is a mixture of um, Are we talking Matt Damon here? <laughs> right. I don't know. Maybe he was farming cinnamon buns. <laughs>
0: um, I like to think that happens. Yeah,
3: I know. Yeah, I like to think of him up on Mars yeah. kind of being like, mmm, mm, tasty cinnamon.
0: <laughs> Maybe we'll see that in a special edition.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Deleted scenes. <laughs> but anyway, um uh on Mars there is a mixture of water and carbon dioxide. Uh So during the Martian winter, which we're now in, that all freezes. Then when the spring comes it thaws, like we experience here on Earth, but it thaws in a different way in that the water thaws the way it does here on Earth. It melts into water, and yeah. then if it gets really hot, it evaporates. But the carbon dioxide goes straight from a solid state to a gas. So the result of that kind of... Um, the, the result of that difference in how the two substances behave has left a bunch of really unusual features on the pole. So it's left these kind of swirling sand dunes basically um, and the reason they're swirling is to do with the Coriolis force which like, honestly I, I still don't understand <laughs> I've been a scientist for years now and I still don't get it. I looked in preparation for this, I looked at a Wikipedia article on it and there was a kind of a moving diagram that made me nauseous so I closed the tab <laughs> but anyway you've got these kind of swirling sand dunes that are left over when um, the carbon dioxide vaporises And that's why that's why the writers at Iris Technica said it looked like a cinnamon bun and I've got to agree with them. Although I think the one I like is technically called a cinnamon swirl. Um
0: I do so, like those. You know as well. those ones, they're yes.
3: kinda like Danishes and they've peel got apart. the Yeah, you can peel them apart. Well I I generally don't stop for long enough to peel it apart. <laughs> I just shove the whole thing in my mouth. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> but um but that's what it's that's what it looks like. And then um kind of cutting through that is um a really prominent feature, uh what the, the, that they're calling the Chasma Boreal, which is um basically like a big uh, a big canyon uh, and in fact actually I was comparing the dimensions um, so it's about 500 kilometers long and it's about 2 kilometers deep I think about 100 kilometers wide so it's not dissimilar to our Grand Canyon here on Earth uh, except the Grand Canyon is a bit narrower but yeah that was one interesting feature they could pick out and they think that's older than the cinnamon swirly bit um, oh, okay. and that over the years layers um, these these kind of sand dunes get further layers deposited on them uh, that build up and build up over time, so this chasm is getting deeper and deeper as time goes on, because of these layers that are getting built up. Uh, So it's really cool. We'll put a link to um, Issa's site in the Show notes, and you can check out the images for yourself. You can get in touch and let us know what food they remind you of, if you like. <laughs> um, so now uh, on to Ian Morrison, who's going to tell us more about Mars and the other planets.
6: The night sky for March two thousand and seventeen. Well, as darkness falls, that lovely region of the sky around the Orion constellation. Taurus up to its right, Gemini up to its left, is beginning to set towards the western horizon. And you might just see Sirius, low above the southwestern horizon, as they gradually fall into the west. The three stars of Orion's belt, as I'm sure you know, if you follow them upwards you come to the Hyades cluster, and beyond the Pleiades cluster in Taurus, and then down to the lower left, to Sirius, in Canis Major. Fairly high up now, to the upper left of Orion, is Gemini, the Heavenly Twins, with the two stars, Castor above and Pollux below. Then there's a fairly empty, apparently, part of the sky, moving over towards the south, the constellation of Cancer. But with binoculars, you can see a rather lovely little cluster, called M45, the Beehive Cluster, or Praesepe. And then further over, we have one of the other great constellations of the northern sky, Leo, with its bright star, Regulus. That will come up in one of the highlights this month. And then gradually, as the evening moves on, Virgo, with Spica, its brightest star, very close, in fact, to Jupiter, is rising in the southeast. Slightly higher up, over in the east, a bright star called Arcturus part of the constellation of Bhutis. And then slightly to the north and almost overhead, we've got Ursa Major with its two stars, Merak and then Dubhay, pointing towards Polaris, the pole star. If you look at the central, quote, star of the handle of the plough, with a telescope, you'll find that in fact Mizar, the brighter, is in fact a double star. And between it and the second star of the little group called Alcor, it's a little Reddish star, quite faint, but makes a nice little open triangle. So quite a lot to see still in the sky tonight and during the month. What about the planets? Jupiter is moving towards opposition on April 7th, and that's when it's due south around midnightish UT. But of course, we'll be in British summertime then. It lies in Virgo, initially some four degrees above the brightest star, Spiker. At the start of March, it rises in the east at about 22.45, but by month's end, by about 20.45. It'll be due south at an elevation of 34 degrees at about two o o at the start and near midnight UT by the end of March. The size of Jupiter's disk increases slightly from 42 to 44 arc seconds as we close towards it. And the magnitude increases very slightly, from minus 2.3 to minus 2.5. And of course, with a small telescope, one should easily be able to see the equatorial bands in the atmosphere, sometimes the great red spot, and up to four of the Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. Well, Saturn. Saturn rises well after midnight and will be highest in the pre-dawn sky. Lying in the western part of Sagittarius, its diameter increases from 16.2 to 17 arc seconds during the month as it shines at a pretty constant magnitude of plus 0.5. It'll be high enough in the southeast before dawn to make out the beautiful ring system, which at over 26 degrees to the line of sight are as open as they ever become. If only it were higher in the ecliptic, its elevation this year never gets above 18 degrees, and so the atmosphere will hinder our view of this most beautiful planet. Mercury passes through superior conjunction on March the 7th. That means it passes between the Earth and the Sun. It becomes visible around the 15th, in the bright twilight just above the western horizon. On the 19th, on its way up in the sky it passes Venus on its way down, some 9 degrees to its right. Then, at magnitude minus 1.4, gradually its brightness drops to about minus 0.4 by the end of the month. With an angular size, which actually only ever gets up to about 7.3 arc seconds by the end of the month, you don't expect to see any details on the surface. Mars is easy to find as March begins. Lying in Pisces, up and to the left of Venus, some 13 degrees down to its lower right. As the month progresses, Mars continues to move eastwards, it moves into Aries on the 8th, while Venus falls back towards the western horizon. Its brightness falls slightly during the month from magnitude plus 1.3 to plus 1.5, while its angular diameter falls from 4.6 to 4.1 arc seconds. And, of course, no details will be expected to be seen on its salmon pink surface. Well, finally, Venus. Well, it starts the month dominating the western sky, shining virtually at its brightest with a magnitude of minus 4.8. It lies due south in mid-afternoon, and can even be seen with the unaided eye, if you know where to look. After dark, in a very dark location, it can even form faint shadows. On the 1st of March it has its highest elevation at sunset, about 30 degrees but then as the month progresses it falls back towards the sun as it passes in front of it, that's inferior conjunction, on the 25th. Its angular size is increasing from 48 to 59 arc seconds during this time but at the same time the phase reduces from 16% down to just 1% illuminated. And the two effects basically compensate each other, which why the brightness doesn't change very much, at about minus 4.1. Very unusually, Venus is far enough north of the Sun that it will start rising before dawn on March the 15th, some 10 days before inferior conjunction. Thus it could be seen for a short while, both at nightfall and also at dawn. That's quite unusual. Invisible light, no details are seen on its brilliant white surface, but you can see some cloud details in the ultraviolet. So finally, what about some highlights? Well, the first few days of March, and particularly the first, there are three planets, and on the first, along with a very thin crescent moon. So if it's clear I must say we haven't had many clear nights over the last few weeks looking southwest one could not fail to spot venus but on these nights venus is about 12 or 13 degrees down to the lower right of mars and between them lies uranus as i said on the 1st of march they'll be adjoined by a very thin waxing crescent moon now quite nicely on the 4th of march At around 10 p.m., the full moon occults Gamma Tori in the Hyades Cluster. Gamma Tori forms the peak of the triangular-shaped cluster. Now, due to parallax, the timings of the occultation vary somewhat across the UK, uh, but nevertheless, it will be a nice thing to try and look out for if it's clear. Now, after the moon has set here, but visible across much of the USA, the moon will occult Aldebaran, which is bright, is not actually part of the cluster, it lies between our sun and the cluster. From a thin strip from Hartford in the east to Vancouver in the west, a grazing occultation will be seen, with Aldebaran disappearing and reappearing many times as its light passes through the valleys lying along the moon's limb. On the 10th of March, all evening, the moon two days before full closes on Regulus in Leo. On the 15th of March, before dawn, the moon lies close to Jupiter and Spica, making a nice triangle, actually. So Jupiter will lie between the moon to its upper left and Spica, Alpha Virginis down to its lower left. On March the 20th, before dawn, Saturn will lie close to the third quarter moon. So looking south, it should be seen over to the right of the moon I usually point out something on the moon that you could see with a small telescope and on the 6th of March and the 19th the Alpine Valley lies close to the Terminator you'll see the Apennine mountain chain that marks the edge of Mare Imbrium and towards the upper end you should see a cleft across them, which is called the Alpine Valley. It's about seven miles wide and 79 miles long. In fact, a thin rill runs along its length. That's pretty hard to see. The dark crater may also be visible nearby. And you may also see the shadow cast by the mountain Mons Piton lying not far away in Mare Imbrium. Actually, it's a very interesting region of the moon. I know the nights are drawing in a bit, but still there's plenty to see in the heavens, and I hope we have some clear nights so you can enjoy it.
3: Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Antipodean listeners, here's Claire Brotherton with the night sky where you are.
7: Cura, and welcome to the March Jodcast from Space Place at Carter Observatory here in Wellington, New Zealand. As we approach the autumn equinox on the 20th of March, our evenings are quickly drawing in, Whilst unfortunately this means that the colder winter weather will soon be on its way, not that we'll be able to tell much difference with the summer we've been having here in Wellington, it also means we have more time to get outside observing our beautiful southern skies. The Milky Way or Teikoroa arches high across the sky from north-northwest to south-southeast after dark. Over the last few months we've been looking at interesting objects lying along the plane of our galaxy, but this month we're going to turn our attention a little to either side. Canopus, the second brightest star in our nighttime sky at magnitude minus 0.74, is just to the southwest of overhead. To Maori, it is known either as Araki, meaning high-born, or as Atutahi or Aotahi, meaning stand-alone, because of its position set apart from the Milky Way. Canopus is circumpolar from our position here, and is considered to be a tapu or sacred star to Maori. A little below Canopus, around halfway down the sky towards the southwest, is bright blue Achenar, a main sequence star around seven times more massive than the Sun, but over 3,000 times more luminous. Achenar is part of a binary system, with a fainter, less massive A-type companion at a distance of 12.3 AU. The two orbit each other in approximately 14 years. Achenar spins extremely fast on its axis in fact so fast that it has flattened out to an oblate spheroid shape rather than a sphere, with the diameter of its equator measuring over 50% larger than its polar diameter. Achenar and Canopus form a roughly equilateral triangle with the southern celestial pole, the point in the sky right above the south pole of the Earth, about which the sky appears to rotate as the Earth spins on its axis. Unlike the northern hemisphere, we have no nearby bright star to mark this point, so we have to estimate it from the surrounding stars. Perhaps the easiest way to find the southern celestial pole is to look for crux, the southern cross, high in the southeast this month with the pointers alpha and beta centauri below. Simply point one hand at Gamma Crucis at the short end of the cross and the other at Achenar and bring them together in the middle, and you should be close to this point. Dropping your hands down to the horizon will then give you south. Not far from the southern celestial pole back towards Akana, you may be able to spot two small fuzzy patches of light, easily seen with the naked eye on a dark moonless night. These are the large and small Magellanic clouds, two small irregular dwarf galaxies that neighbour our own. Whilst these galaxies are much smaller than the Milky Way, combined they still contain billions of stars. The Large Magellanic Cloud, or LMC, is the higher of the two and is located 160,000 light-years away. Look out for a number of young star clusters visible as small patches of light in binoculars or a small telescope. Smaller and more distant at around 200,000 light-years is the Small Magellanic Cloud, or SMC. A bridge of gas connects the two clouds, evidence of a tidal interaction between the two. The best time to look out for these galaxies is around the new moon on the 28th of the month, when they will be high in the south after dark. The pointers, Alpha and Beta Centauri, are the first and second brightest stars in the constellation of Centaurus the Centaur. Centaurus was one of the 48 constellations listed by the 2nd century astronomy Ptolemy, observing from Alexandria in Egypt, but it can be traced back to Babylonian times. While Centaurus is now very much a southern constellation, it once lay close to the equator and has been slowly shifting southwards due to precession for thousands of years. It now covers an area of over a thousand square degrees, the ninth largest constellation in the sky, but it was once even larger and incorporated the constellations of Lupus as an animal caught by the centaur and crux of the southern cross as part of the centaur's legs. Because of its position along the Milky Way, it contains a large number of bright stars, with over 280 over magnitude 6.5, and 10 brighter than magnitude 3. The constellation also contains a number of interesting star clusters and nebulae. The globular cluster Omega Centauri, sat just to the east of the bright band of our galaxy, is perhaps the most famous, and is easily visible to the naked eye at magnitude 3.7. This is by far the largest and brightest globular cluster in the Milky Way, with a luminosity greater than a million suns. Omega Centauri measures around 150 light-years across and contains several million mainly yellow dwarf stars. As with most globular clusters, these stars are incredibly old, with an average age of 12 billion years. The cluster is relatively easy to find, even with the naked eye appearing as a fuzzy star around 13 degrees, that's a little more than the width of your fist at arm's length, northeast of Gamma Crucis, at the top of the Southern Cross. In fact, Omega Centauri was originally thought to be a star, and was given the Bayer designation Omega as the 24th brightest in the constellation. Unaided, it appears to cover around half a degree when seen in a clear, dark sky. Through binoculars, it is an even more stunning sight, spanning almost a full degree of the sky, twice that of the full moon. With a telescope, the cluster becomes a glowing, shimmering ball of stars, with many individual stars visible towards the outskirts of the cluster. As well as being exceptionally large and bright, Omega Centauri appears to have formed more slowly than other globular clusters, with two independent periods of star formation over 2 billion years. Because of this, some astronomers have suggested that it may be the remains of a dwarf galaxy that was absorbed into the Milky Way billions of years ago. Further east and low on the horizon after dark is the constellation of Virgo, with its brightest star, Spica, rising just as twilight ends at the start of the month. By the end of the month, it's rising just after sunset. Spica is actually a particular type of binary system called a rotating ellipsoidal variable where its two components orbit so close together that they become egg-shaped rather than spherical. The components can only be separated by observing their spectra and looking for the tiny shifts caused by the two stars orbiting each other. At around 250 light-years, Spica is one of the closest massive binary star systems to our Sun. Virgo is also home to the Virgo Cluster of Galaxies, containing perhaps as many as 2,000 members. So this part of the sky is particularly galaxy rich, and we will be exploring some of these objects further in the coming months as the constellation gets higher in our evening sky. The Virgo cluster forms the core of the larger Virgo supercluster, of which our local group of galaxies is also a part. But there's another reason to look towards Virgo this month. Just below and to the left of Spica is bright golden Jupiter now becoming the dominant planet in our evening skies, as Venus disappears in the dusk sky. The nearly full moon will pass close by on the 14th and 15th of the month. With a decent pair of binoculars, you should be able to pick out Jupiter's four largest moons, Io, Europa, Ganymede and Callisto. Known as the Galilean moons, they were first spotted when Galileo turned his newly invented telescope to the sky over 400 years ago. The discovery of these moons orbiting another celestial body provided some of the first solid evidence that the Earth was not in fact the centre of everything, with the whole known universe orbiting around it. Wishing you clear skies from the team at Space Place at Carter Observatory, here in the centre of New Zealand.
3: Thanks for that, Claire. And now on to the feedback. Okay, so we have some posts this month, which, as you know, makes us very excited here at the JotCast. We've got a lovely postcard from Steph from West Australia, and it's got a beautiful picture on the front of Rottnest Island, which, like, honestly, I wish I was there right now, because it looks amazing. It's this beautiful, like, turquoise water and a lovely white sand beach and a nice lighthouse, and everybody looks like they're having a really nice time, and I'm super envious So Steph says, dear Jodcast, found out about your show because I was at a party a few months ago and mentioned I was studying astronomy to someone. He said, do you listen to the Jodcast? Turns out he works in the Turing building on Wednesdays and walks past a sign advertising your show. So your advertising has reach. Ah, uh, that's 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 really cool. Um, that's amazing. I don't know what sign that is. Maybe maybe it's the award that we won, which is up on the corridor. Um, maybe
0: maybe yeah. it is
3: the big
1: sign by the loft.
3: Yeah, <laughs> the loft. The lift. The, yeah, the big sign by the lift. Maybe that's the one. And Steph says, if you see an Aussie guy wandering around on Wednesdays, tell Mark I say hi. Um, so. I don't know who this Mark is. Uh, I feel like we should know. (laughs) I feel like I should know him. Um, I mean, I come in most Wednesdays. uh, So I'll keep an eye out for Aussie Mark wandering around on Wednesdays. And I'll see if I can... Minnie might know. Only because Minnie's also from Australia. And Minnie also comes on Wednesdays. So (laughs) I'll ask her. There might be a thing. But Mark, uh, if you're listening, uh, I'm I'm sorry. We don't know who you are. And you can get in touch to let us know if you like. And uh, if... You're someone that we should already know but are forgetting about. We're, we're terribly sorry. Um, so yeah, so thank you for that lovely postcard, Steph. And she, oh yeah, she says, Steph from WA, jod on. Well, you jot on too, Steph, and good luck with your studies.
1: Okay, for email this month, none. No emails. Not this month. Short Please send fashion. us some emails. <laughs> Mark, if you're out there, send an email.
3: Yeah, yeah. Yes. Or a postcard, we like those too.
0: Meanwhile, on Facebook, Anne Stone says, great piece on x-ray binaries exciting and inspiring don't miss it
3: and on twitter uh former jodcaster jen gupta hi jen says in in a seminar by ian harrison who just showed a map of Emerlin. and now i'm having flashbacks to our jodcast road trip to all of the telescopes ah uh, yes the jodcast of the famous jodcast road trip which uh, i think we we had flashbacks to during our live show last year um, which we're coming up on a year now from our live show so that was an exciting time Um and that's uh that's Jen Gupta of course was at that live show uh, so some of you I'm sure a lot of you remember her Um so hi Jen lovely to hear from you as always I hope things are going well
0: in other news this month our very own Monique Henson was featured in the online series Women of Science
3: yay Monique I've been following that actually it's lovely
0: yeah if I, I haven't been following it specifically but I did see this <coughs> come up in my feed yeah it's good it's good to know that it has reach and she says it's okay to find things hard that doesn't mean you're stupid I think you determine your value as a person and I think in this age of social media I think those are words that we would all do well to remember yeah
3: that's a fantastic message no I've been looking at that whole series it's really really nice well done Monique it's absolutely fantastic um so, yeah, we'll, we might put a link to that in the show notes as well in case any of our listeners want to check out Monique. Um, yes. Because it's a, I, it's I a really it nice photo done. story and she talks a bit about her work and she gives us other inspiring little lessons like that. So Yeah. <laughs> okay.
1: And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net.
3: On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast.
0: On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube
1: at YouTube.com slash Jodcast.
3: On Flickr at Flickr.com slash groups slash Jodcast.
0: And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on our website. Okay, that's it for the show. Thanks to Minnie for this month's interview. The editors this month were Adam Averson, Claire Bretherton, Ian Harrison, Prabhu Thigaraj, and Charlie Walker. The producers this month were Naomi Asabre-Fringpong and George Bendo. Until next time, John! on!